Chapter Sixteen of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I am the man with the black cord. Rose Cottage lay on a main road, and not far from it was a neat little country inn. The inn was an old building with a wide courtyard and a large garden stretching far away from the back of the house. One end of this garden, with its fencing of high green hedge, was separated only by a small strip of grassy meadow from Maximoff's property. Just as Mueller passed the inn, two closed cabs drove in under the archway of the old-fashioned building. There was nothing remarkable in this, for although the inn was little used by the more well-to-do inhabitants of the neighborhood, it was quite a gathering place for cabmen who had brought a fare out into the country and were resting a bit before returning to town one thing however was noticeable on this occasion and that was that the two wagons did not stop in the courtyard as usual but drove right through down to the furthest end of the garden also the observer might have seen that the curtains on all the windows of the cabs were drawn but there was no one to notice this for there was no one in the courtyard of the inn except the host of the eagle himself who stood in his doorway drive right on in there's no one in the courtyard nor in the garden and the key is in the gate this was what he said to the leading driver. The two cabs drove on unseen, down to the gate in the fence, which was hidden by a thick hedge. Through this gate one could pass out onto the meadows, which lay between the inn and Rose Cottage. The latter was protected from the outer world by a very high brick wall, having a handsome entrance gate on the street side. But there was a smaller gate at the back, opening onto the meadow. No one living in Rose Cottage knew that this back gate had been unlocked since early morning, that it had been opened from the outside, and that the garden was now accessible to anyone. When the cab stopped in front of the inn garden gate, five men alighted from the closed wagons, slipped through the gate, across the grassy lane, and into the garden of Rose Cottage. One of these men was Constable Kern, a second wore the uniform of a city police official. The three other men in plain clothes, were heavily built individuals with calm eyes and indifferent mien. The five men slipped from one bush to another, safely hidden from the house, until they had come several yards from the gate. Here they stopped on the near side of the circle of a peculiarly cut box which surrounded a young cedar. One of the men carried a spade and immediately began to dig at the earth with it. The two other men in plain clothes continued their creeping progress toward the house. With a little care, they could come quite near the dwelling without being seen, as Maximoff's fondness for arrangements of evergreens gave them sufficient cover. There was no dog in Rose Cottage, and the two maidservants were busy in the house. When the two men had come quite close to the dwelling house, they stood, watching and listening, without going further. The bell of the front gate shrilled through the quiet air. The long window opening onto the terrace was thrown back, and a carefully dressed gentleman came out whistling a merry tune. He laid down the magazine he carried onto a little table and walked on down the few steps from the terrace. That's him, whispered one of the listeners to his companion. They crouched down the more carefully behind the evergreens. Maximoff turned on the top step and looked back at the house. Stay where you are, he called to the woman who appeared at the door. I'll open the gate, but don't forget to bring us in something to eat. I am very hungry. "'No, sir, I'll attend to it. Mrs. Schober told me what to get for you,' answered the woman, who was evidently the cook, before she disappeared from the doorway. The doctor had turned the corner of the house, and the men behind the evergreens could no longer see him. 
but in a few moments he returned, arm in arm, with his guest. "'Don't you want to look at my newly blossoming chrysanthemums?' asked Maximoff. "'They are white as milk, and most unusually beautiful.' He pulled his guest gently in the direction of the conservatory, but the latter did not follow the pressure. "'No, my dear doctor,' he said. "'I want to talk to you about something much more serious today. Can't we go into the house? It will be easier for me to talk to you in your attractive study.' and I have something to tell you that will surprise you greatly. Oh, indeed. Yes, it is the physician I came to see today, not the friend alone. The two men stood on the terrace now, in front of the long open window. You aren't well? The men behind the bushes heard Maximoff say. I noticed it yesterday. At least you are not as calm as usual. No, replied Hartman, leaning on the railing as if for support. I was very restless yesterday, as I have been for several days there is a crisis coming on again i know it in this unnatural excitement this fear that is on me can't we leave this window open when we are in the room i need the air hartman passed through into the study as he spoke the doctor followed him with a shake of the head but he hospitably fulfilled his guest's wishes at once threw open the other half of the window drew a light table and two comfortable armchairs up to the threshold and invited his friend to make himself comfortable well then doctor began mr hartman then he paused and looked about distrustfully no one can overhear us no no one could not mrs schober or sonya suddenly come in they are in vienna today. oh yes you told me about it i remember now but your servants the coachman is in the city with the ladies the cook has just returned to the kitchen and the other maid is busy upstairs the doctor smiled at his guest's nervousness well if you are really sure that no one can hear us mr hartman looked very anxious and nervous maximoff's face grew grave he laid his hand on his visitor's arm and spoke gently and soothingly you are really very nervous today, dear friend he said we all have these little troubles now and then tell me frankly what the matter is but first of all we will quiet your nerves by giving you something good to eat it's the best thing in the world he touched an electric bell on the wall near him the cook will bring us a light lunch and when she has gone we can lock the doors behind her draw our chairs quite close together while we are enjoying the refreshments does that program appeal to you mr hartman took the hand that was stretched out to him and pressed it warmly there's no reason why it shouldn't he said i feel calmer already you have something that is almost like hypnotism in your strength i feel as if you could force me to believe you whether i wanted to or not is that really true asked the doctor and his eyes gleamed but here's our lunch he said as the door opened he rose from his chair and examined the contents of the various plates and dishes on the big silver tray there this looks all right now bring us over those cigars said the doctor to the cook and then you can vanish again and see that i am not disturbed under any circumstances i am not at home to any one now very well sir when the woman had brought over the cigars and cigarettes and had left the room maximoff locked the three inner doors of the study and came back to the table he sought out the choicest morsels for his guest, but Mr. Hartman seemed to have very little appetite that morning. He had scarcely taken a few bites when he pushed back his plate and said in a voice that was not natural with him, "'You are very kind, doctor, but I cannot eat. I really cannot. My throat seems closed up.' This was the actual truth. The soft-hearted Mueller was really suffering from some of the symptoms of excitement and anxiety which he had described maximoff himself was quite alarmed now he put down his knife and fork took a hasty swallow of brandy then reached over the table and caught at his guest's hand 
"'Why, your hand's like ice,' he said, "'and your pulse is beating unnaturally fast. It's time we looked into this matter. Do you think you would have confidence in me as a physician, although I have practiced general medicine very little? I am really only a specialist in mental problems.' Mr. Hartman wiped his brow, which was bedewed with sweat, and answered hoarsely, "'That is why I came to you.' what i do not understand the doctor looked up it is not my body that is sick but i never should have thought that my soul is sick hartman straightened up in his chair with a short laugh while a look of cunning brightened his eyes his arms lay on the side rests of the chair and his fingers drummed the measure of a merry march as if he were in the very best of spirits he looked just a little malicious and decidedly mischievous the doctor was leaning towards him and looking at him with the greatest interest. Finally, he said slowly, "'And now, Mr. Hartman, tell me all about it.' "'That's why I'm here.' "'Well, then, you'll probably think me a fool.' "'No, you are quite mistaken.' "'Oh, yes, yes, you will,' insisted the guest, with a threatening look. Maximov had spent years in the study of mental alienation. It had been his chief interest since his youth. The unbalanced mind, the sick soul, was the one thing which absorbed all his mental powers. He possessed almost every important work written on this subject, and had had many an opportunity to study actual cases. It was natural, therefore, that he should be most curious at this sudden turn in the behavior of a man whom he had known quite intimately now for several weeks, and who had always appeared to him absolutely normal and sane. And now this man came to him acting in a way that was decidedly not normal, telling him himself that there was something wrong with his mind, and certainly looking it. Maximoff knew all the symptoms, particularly the sudden cunning, this unmotivated merriment. He was certain that he was in the presence of a man whose mind was affected. He was very sorry for Hartman, whom he had grown to like. But his love for the study of the sick mind overcame his pity for his friend. He pulled his chair nearer to his visitor and began his questioning. "'Well, suppose you are right.' began the doctor with a delicate smile. What do you say now? I say that you are still mistaken. Indeed. Then you mean to say— I mean to say that I know what the matter with me is and who I really am, and I know that there are moments like those yesterday when I come near betraying myself. Oh, I see. You are afraid that although you are mentally quite normal, others will think you insane? That is it exactly. And why do you fear that? Because I cannot always control myself because every now and then I am forced to do what they insist upon. Who are they? Had I better tell you that? Hartman's eyes took on a renewed look of sly cunning. You are quite safe in telling me, said Maximoff, lighting a cigarette and handing his guest the box of cigars. Hartman took one and smoked so hastily that he was soon surrounded by a pale cloud. The doctor pulled his chair still nearer. He did not want to lose the changing expressions on the other's face. "'Well, aren't you going to tell me?' he said, as Hartman sat staring ahead of him and smiling weirdly. "'I can't tell you,' he murmured finally. "'Why can't you?' "'Because they have no names.' "'I don't understand.' "'You'll understand as soon as I tell you more. But first I want to know if you can give me some medicine.' "'What sort of medicine do you want?' "'I want something to quiet my nerves, something to give me back the control over myself.' so that I do not draw people's attention to me by some ridiculous stupidity. What stupidity do you mean? Why, yesterday, for instance. You saw how absurdly I acted, and didn't you notice how they all looked at me when I nearly upset the wine-glass, and then when I laughed at Bower's remark, 
and said such stupid things? Yes, I did notice it. Well, there you see, and I do not want to draw people's attention to me. Why not? Because if I do attract too much attention, then I'm done for. Now I don't understand you at all. I believe that. You haven't the faintest idea of who I really am. Aren't you Robert Hartman, landowner from Poland? Maximov's guest laughed heartily. He beat his hands on his knees and choked in the violence of his merriment. Robert Hartman, he repeated, and could scarcely say the words clearly, so shaken was he by his fits of laughter. Finally he had controlled himself, and now it was he who pulled his chair nearer to the other. You are quite sure no one can hear us? he whispered. The doctor shook his head. No one. We are quite undisturbed here, he replied soothingly. You are such a versatile man, continued the other. You are not only a physician, you are a philosopher as well, and I understand you are interested as a philosopher in every phase of mental abnormality. Yes, certainly, certainly. And among other things, in one branch of the science of the soul which is most illuminating. What do you mean by that? I mean you are greatly interested, or I have understood that you are, in crime and criminals. Or rather, Hartman punctuated his remarks with a scornful gesture, or rather in that which the weaklings and the cowards call crime. A golden gleam shot up in the doctor's dark eyes, and a peculiar smile curved his well-cut mouth. A great many of the books in your splendid library concern this fascinating chapter of human existence. Hartman continued to speak without waiting for any answer. And I notice that for years you have been collecting all those copies of our leading newspapers, which give reports of important criminal cases of recent times. Yes, you are right, but why do you speak of that now? I will explain in a few moments. You believe, then, that I am Robert Hartman from Poland, landed proprietor and respectable house-owner? Well, Maximoff's face expressed great interest. The golden gleams in his dark eyes clustered to brilliant points of light. But I'm not. I'm somebody else said his guest, looking about anxiously. But you're the only person I shall tell the truth to. His eyes closed to narrow slits, and his voice took on a threatening tone as he continued. Professional etiquette demands that you should hold my confidence an absolute secret. Therefore I am going to make you a confession, a confession that I must make to someone, or I shall go mad. I know that I would really become insane if I could not tell somebody who I am. The doctor breathed quicker. His face flushed, and his voice was hoarse as he asked, "'Who are you, then?' His guest bent over until their faces almost touched, and whispered, "'If you look over the files of your newspapers from 1892 until 1906, you will see that during these years thirty-one murder cases occurred in Vienna, murder cases of which robbery was the motive. Twenty-four of the criminals were caught, notice this, only twenty-four. Seven remained undiscovered and free.' On the 15th of April, 1892, the woman Schramm, keeper of a little tap-room in the 15th district, was murdered. On the 8th of August, 1897, Thomas Brabenek was discovered stabbed to death in a grove outside the city. On the 26th of May, 1904, an old woman by the name of Farron, widow of a railway switchman, was found dead in her house. Please notice how easily these figures come to me. There are certain dates one does not forget. Well, go on, go on said Maximoff eagerly. His face had regained its usual clear pallor, but the gleam in his eyes had grown wilder, and a wicked smile played about his half-open mouth. His strong white hand held his guest's arm as if in a vice, and his voice sank to a hoarse whisper. Mr. Hartman smiled also. He was now quite calm, 
and seemed absolutely cold and indifferent as to the effect of his narrative on the other. There was a tone of scorn in his voice as he took up his story. The murderers, or rather the murderer, of these three unfortunates has never been found. The police and the public are still laboring under the delusion that it was a case of murder for robbery. Maximoff's guest laughed aloud as his eyes, bright with mocking merriment, met the Russian's wild gaze. Absurd, isn't it? As if we, who can make thousands by one blow if we want to, would murder for the sake of a few crowns. Why, I can tell you that the Shram woman had exactly seven crowns, eighteen hellars in her till. Brabenek had less than six crowns in his pocket, and the poor old farren creature hadn't enough money in her whole little hut for me to pay the cab back to my home. But the rest of the world don't understand. The herd of ordinary weaklings can't understand the keen sensation that lies in killing for the sheer sake of killing. Maximov's hand tightened on the arm of his guest with a grip of iron. His face was terrible. It was frozen into a smile that might have expressed the evil of a fiend in hell. His eyes alone were alive. They rested greedily with a sort of devilish satisfaction on the man who sat there telling him these things. Mueller's hand still held the cigar which had gone out. My dear doctor, won't you give me a light? said the detective calmly. In spite of his self-control, he was anxious to get rid of that deadly grasp on his arm. He lit the cigar again, took a few puffs, and continued. Now you know my secret, but you don't know my name yet. It isn't really necessary that you should know it. It's enough that you know now that I am the mysterious murderer who has given the authorities so many difficult riddles to solve, riddles they have not yet solved. A smile of easy self-satisfaction illumined Mueller's face. It was reflected from Maximov's eyes, although the Russian had now become noticeably uneasy. The sympathetic objectiveness with which he listened to the beginning of his guest's recital had vanished entirely. His lips moved as if to speak, and yet he did not speak, while his mouth twitched and his hands clenched and unclenched nervously. The veteran detective, on the other hand, had now regained his habitual self-control, and he was so calm that it was easy for him to continue to play his part thoroughly well. "'What worries me now,' he began again, "'is the way my nerves are going back on me. As you saw yourself, I draw people's attention to my stupid behavior.' I was very much annoyed that it should have happened yesterday in a house where I wished to remain unknown. Maximov started as if a sudden thought had occurred to him. What are you doing there? he exclaimed suspiciously. You forced your way into that house under a false name, and it can't be for a good purpose. Oh, be easy about that, replied the other. No harm will come to any of the Plone family, particularly not to Miss Plone, if that is what is worrying you, through my presence there. But what do you want there, anyway? repeated Maximov. His guest smiled and sank his voice to a whisper. I want to look on the bunglers who are still fussing about, breaking their stupid heads over my last deed, and, naturally, not finding out anything. Why, they haven't even found the— What last deed do you mean? interrupted the doctor vehemently. For the last few minutes Mueller had held his cigar in his left hand. Now, with a casual, unobtrusive movement, he dropped his right hand into the coat pocket which contained the bottle of chloroform. Then he answered in a tone of astonishment, Why, haven't you understood yet? Of course, it's the Erlock case, I mean. Maximov sprang from his chair, a hot wave of blood rushing up to his very temples. He looked dazed, bewildered. He pressed both hands to his forehead, measured the length of the room a few times with long strides, 
then halted suddenly in front of his guest and burst into an uproarious fit of laughter. He put out his hand to a chair as if for support, so greatly was he shaken by the violence of his merriment. Hartman looked up at him in indignant surprise. "'Have you gone mad?' he exclaimed. Maximoff pulled himself together and controlled his laughter with an effort. "'No, I am not mad, my dear friend, but now I know what's the matter with you.' Now it was Mueller's turn to spring up. "'What do you mean by that?' he cried harshly. But the doctor patted him on the shoulder and answered soothingly. "'Oh, nothing, nothing at all to offend you. I was simply overcome by the idea that you, Erlock's murderer, should deliberately come here to watch the people who are hunting for him in vain.' Mueller bowed as if flattered. "'The best joke of all happened on a Sunday, two weeks ago,' he began again. The doctor went back to his chair and sat down. The inward merriment against which he was still fighting shone from his eyes and played about his handsome mouth. "'Oh, please, do tell me about it,' he asked, biting his lips to keep back the laughter. "'What happened two weeks ago, then?' "'It was Sunday night. I went back to the greenhouse, as I did several times before. And what do you suppose? One of those spying bunglers was there also. A detective, I mean. Must have been the detective you mentioned a little while ago.' "'Oh, that was a detective, was it?' "'I put him out in short order, I can tell you. I fired at him twice. But I'm sorry to say I didn't hit him.' "'Oh, then it was you who did the shooting that night.' "'Then my valet, who came to my help, and I walked back and forth, twisting and curving about the moor. I wanted to cover our trail, for I knew that the fool would be waiting for me, and I didn't want him to see where I was living. But I must say he was cleverer than I thought. We didn't see him again, but he must have followed us.' "'What? Why do you believe that?' cut in Maximoff, greatly surprised. "'I found his footprints in the mud outside the garden gate next morning. Since then I have been in a constant state of surprise, that I should have been left so undisturbed.' "'I don't believe that you would have been left undisturbed if the man had come there in pursuit of you,' replied Maximoff, emphasizing each word sharply, with a rolling anger in his voice. Then he said more brightly, I give you my word the man was there by pure accident. But now I want you to tell me how you did that trick in the greenhouse. The whole thing is such a mystery, and I am naturally very curious to hear the explanation of it. He smiled at Mueller ironically as he spoke. It took me many weeks to think it out, to plan it all beforehand, as you may imagine, began the detective. I hung about the garden wall in the disguise of a peddler and took a wax impression of the three keyholes which barred the way to Erlock's room the garden gate and the two front doors, the iron one and the inner one. Then I waited for a stormy evening, when the noise of the wind should deaden everything else, climbed over the garden wall, opened the gate from the inside, and opened the house doors. I entered the house and Erlock's study, the door of which I knew was never locked, for the old gentleman might at any moment need the help of his housekeeper. He was aged and feeble, and worried about his health. Mueller stopped talking and took a long puff from his cigar. "'Well, go on. Tell me about it,' insisted the doctor. Mueller's eyes lit up again in cruel cunning. "'Well, then, then I shot Erlock,' he remarked with a smile. The doctor gave a short, hard laugh, then spoke gently. "'Well, my friend, go on. Tell me the rest.' "'Then I carried the body out onto the moor,' narrated Mueller, losing himself again in the enjoyment of his cigar. But Maximoff bent over and almost tore it from his hand, as he said, "'I want you to talk, not to smoke.' Why, what else is there to talk about? The greatest mystery of all, the mystery that no one has yet solved. Maximoff was quite calm as he said this. His only sensation seemed to be an overweening curiosity. 
Oh, you mean the garden door bolted from the inside? Well, when I carried the body out, I went back into the garden, locked and bolted the door, and climbed over the wall. That's simple enough. Yes, that, and the strangling of an old man, that's all very simple, mocked Maximoff. Any fool can do that. Oh, now, see here, exclaimed Mueller angrily. Any fool, repeated Maximoff sharply. Then, with kaleidoscopic suddenness, he was once more the friendly, soothing physician. Of course, I don't mean you when I say any fool, he continued, for you have outdone the cleverest criminal I know, the man with the black cord. He himself might be proud of this crime. The doctor's eyes fairly sparkled, and his smile was triumphant. Why, yes, I am the man with the black cord, remarked Mueller, his eyes shining also, and his lips curved in a victorious smile. The doctor sprang up from his chair, ran back and forth through the study with his hands pressed to his temples, then halted again before his guest, and again his uproarious laughter echoed from the walls of the handsome room. "'Oh, that's great!' he cried merrily. "'That's the most delicious thing I've heard in many a day. You, then, you are the genius of this crime, the unknown whom you yourself first called, the man with the black cord?' Again his laughter rang through the room, then with another one of his sudden changes, his voice quieted down to gentleness, and he continued. Well, then, you great man, do explain to me the riddle of the doors locked from the inside, and the disappearance of the strangled victim from the closed room. Of the shot victim, you mean? No, he was strangled, first chloroformed and then strangled, if you want to know the particulars, declared Maximoff in a tone of conviction. All right, just as you like, replied Mueller, with a smile as of satisfied vanity. Well, first I underscored the three words in the old book on the table, then I left it open there and locked the bedroom from the inside. Then I turned the key in the lock of the study door in such a way that it only needed the least little touch to snap the lock. Well, and then? Maximoff's breath came quickly and Mueller's hand was clasped tightly around the neck of the chloroform bottle in his pocket. Then, he went on, then I took a long thin iron rod with a hook on the end which I had brought with me and when I had left the house, locking both front doors, I went around in front of the sitting-room windows and stood on the bench that is there. I pushed the rod into the room, through the open window, and with its hook I could easily catch the key of the door and turn it, snapping the lock. So that, you see, in this way both doors were locked from the inside, and their keys were in the proper place. That was no such great trick, but I committed a blunder here. I had to leave a burning candle on the little table, so that I could see the lock distinctly. I wanted to put out this candle with the end of the rod, but it was difficult to manage it, and I hit the burning wick with such violence that the wax splattered all over the table. Well, doctor, why don't you say something? Maximoff had sunk down in a heap in his chair, completely absorbed in his thoughts. Finally he raised his head, doubt, anxiety, and scorn, striving for the mastery in his face. And that's why you claim to be the man with the black cord, he murmured, rising and beginning again, his uneasy pacing of the room. Mueller rose also. He pushed his chair back so that the door onto the terrace was free, and the heavy armchair stood between him and Maximoff. He had already taken the little bottle of chloroform from his pocket and held it in his closed hand, thumb and first finger in place on the nickel top. Then he waited. At first, Maximoff's anger seemed to gain the victory over his warring emotions. Then a moment later he controlled himself and his scorn came uppermost again. He stopped still in the middle of the room, both hands in his pockets, his voice hushed to a quiet, calm tone, while his eyes rested mockingly on those of his guest. 
But you haven't finished your story. Where did you hide Erlock's body? Mueller pretended embarrassment. He stared at the doctor as if quite bewildered. The body? The body? Where did I hide it? He murmured. Then, after a pause, I... I hid it. Well, where did you hide it? came from between the doctor's set teeth. Mueller looked quite helpless. I... I don't know. I can't remember. Then hold your tongue! screamed Maximoff. But Mueller persisted obstinately. All the same, I'm the man with the black cord. Here, look at this. I carry a piece of it with me wherever I go. He held out the bit of cord he had found on Erlock's bed, so that the other could see it. Maximoff stared at it, his face reddened, the veins on his temples pulsed audibly. "'You are a fool,' he cried. "'An impertinent, insolent idiot! How dare you usurp the credit for a genius that you never possessed! Why, you fool, I am the man with the black cord! I, and I'll crush the life out of you, you!' He could get no further. He choked and gasped and bent forward towards the slight figure of the man who stood opposite him. His powerful hands clenched threateningly, the great muscles of his shoulders stiffening visibly through his coat. Mueller made a sudden movement of his right hand, then slipped through the open door onto the terrace. In the same instant a sharp whistle rang out, and the two men from behind the fir tree dashed into the study. They found the room full of the odor of chloroform, and Maximoff already half overcome by the fumes. He still raged and screamed, striking out with his hands and snapping at his captors with his teeth. But the chloroform had already robbed him of most of his great strength. The frightened women servants rushed to the window and stood there cowering in terror at the noise and at the unexpected sight of several uniformed policemen in the garden. The Viennese official and Constable Kern entered the study while Mr. Hartman walked rapidly towards the lower end of the garden. The terrifying shrieks still rang through the house. Then, finally, all was still. Sergius Maximoff, bound hand and foot, was thrown down into an armchair by his captors. Even then it took all their strength to hold him until the violence of his outbreak spent itself in the reaction of utter exhaustion. He sat quite still. A sly smile wreathed his lips, and in his eyes shone a satanic determination. The police commissioner stood before him. "'Doctor, we are here to arrest you. We have a wagon waiting back of your garden. You can be driven away quietly without being seen. I am taking for granted, therefore, that you will come with me voluntarily, that you will walk there yourself.' "'If you will take these cords off my feet,' replied Maximoff proudly, "'I will follow you wherever you say. But you will find, my dear sir, that before this day is over, it will be up to you to ask my pardon humbly. You have made a mistake in your prisoner. The man you are looking for has been living in Mr. Plone's house under the name of Hartman. It was I who discovered his identity, and I was about to take him prisoner when he overcame me with chloroform and escaped.' "'We'll find him,' remarked the commissioner calmly." and Maximoff continued, "'But you must lose no time. I will hold you responsible if he escapes entirely. You may better understand the importance of what I say when I tell you that this Hartman is the man with the black cord who has Erlock's murder to his credit, as well as the others.' The commissioner bowed in silence. At a gesture from him, the attendants loosened the fetters on the Russian's feet. "'Very well, we can go now,' said Maximoff, rising from the chair. He was so exhausted that the attendants had to support him as they walked from the house and through the garden. A weird smile brightened the Russian's gloomy face as the little group moved slowly over the lawn towards the rear fence. Then they turned the corner of a group of fir trees, and the quiet of the pleasant spot was broken by a terrific scream. Maximoff stood still. 
his eyes widened, staring at the devastated bed of box which he himself had arranged a few weeks before. The little cedar lay cut down and thrown to one side. The rounded heads of box were torn ruthlessly out and cast in a disorderly heap. Where they had been, the earth was removed from a long, shallow trough, and in this trough lay the body of Leopold Erlock, fully dressed, his nightshirt spread across his legs. "'Come, doctor, the cabs are waiting,' said the commissioner. But Maximoff did not move. One more gasping shriek, and he fell unconscious to the ground. At this moment Mueller was already out in the road, walking towards the factory. He walked very slowly, his head sunk deep on his breast, his face ghastly pale. When that horrible scream rang through the quiet morning air, he stopped in his walk and turned to look behind him. His fingers worked as if in a cramp, his teeth set firm, and his breath came in a gasp that was a sobbing sigh. End of chapter 16